Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning as we continue to look at 1 Peter, chapter 2, and we'll be focusing our attention this morning on verses 9 and 10. I have been saying along the way that we belong to each other because we belong to Christ. Once we come into the church, having believed Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So new life has been injected into the church by the living Christ. We were begotten by the enduring word of God, and by the word of God we grow spiritually. So Christians are now living stones being built into a spiritual house, and that house is still being built, and the Lord is building his church. And of course, Christians meet together in the church, and the church constitutes a place where God dwells, and that is referred to in Scripture as a temple, where God's presence is, where God communicates with his people through the eternal, enduring word of God, and where God receives from his people gifts, sacrifices, worship, and prayers on a regular basis. So then together, Christians are living stones in the same building. We are royal priests serving in the same temple, worshiping the same God. And finally, Christians belong within the same community. So let's look at, uh, read together verse 4 through 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 10. It says, And coming to him, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we look at the word of God, we would again, Lord, get the sense of what it teaches us today so we can put it into practice. Lord, don't just allow us to be people who gain a lot of knowledge without practice. But Lord, let us meditate upon the word of God 
so it gets down to, into our soul, so we're able to digest it there. And that in digesting the truth, it would become a part of how we live our life. And Lord, that's what you want. So I pray that you would do that and help us to grasp and understand it for our lives today. In Christ, I pray. Amen. So those who, as from last time, those who do not believe have examined the same stone, that's Jesus Christ, and have determined there is no value to the stone, but believers and unbelievers examine the stone, but they come to different conclusions and different outcomes. Christ is the only way of salvation. He cannot be avoided. He cannot be ignored. So then to that person who rejects him, for whatever reason they reject him, that person remains in a state of ruin and destruction, like we saw in the last part of verse number 8 of chapter 2. And to this doom, they were also appointed. It's a pretty heavy statement there. And this verse really states the consequences of rejecting Christ, God's appointed stone, that God punishes those who reject Christ. And those Jews who have rejected God's cornerstone will have no mercy. Anyone who does not receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior will have no mercy. So they stumble because they will not listen to God's word and obey it. And so this punishment will follow them. They will fall. That's the sense of that passage. God's mercy is only to be had when one believes wholeheartedly in Jesus Christ. So, this morning, uh, we are not that anymore. We are not unbelievers. We gather as believers. We gather as part of one of the stones in Christ's temple. We, We are different because we met Christ. We have believed in Christ and are now accepted in the beloved. So that means with our new life in Christ brings new identity. Now, this this is probably where we're at right now. We covered all these together. Uh, Christians are living stones assembled into a spiritual house together. Uh, Christians are... uh, part of a holy order of priests offering... God, spiritual sacrifice, together Christians share God's understanding of Christ, which we ended last time. And then last time I met with you, I asked you a question, and the question was, who are you? And uh, I kind of answered that question. I said, well, you can possibly answer that question in this way. I'm an American or... I live on the East Coast, or I am a husband or wife, or I'm a teacher, uh, an IT person, a pilot, I'm retired, I'm an officer of the law, I drive a truck, I'm an MD, I'm a nurse, I'm a child care worker or an elder care worker, I'm a counselor, I'm a home manager, I'm a na- whatever it may be. Other things could be included in the answer, but I doubt very much, as I said last time, 
that you included, I'm a saint. We don't usually do that. Uh, And the reason why is because either we weren't taught that we were saints from Scripture, or we think that it would be prideful to identify ourselves as saints, and maybe because saints also sin, and so we don't like to equate those two things together. And we think of ourselves more as saved sinners than we do as saints. Uh, Being a saint who is alive and free in Christ does not mean spiritual maturity or sinlessness, but it does provide to us the basis for hope and for future growth because we have to see ourselves how God sees us and how God made us. See, the fact of the matter is, if we go anywhere in Scripture, we will find out that believers in Christ are saints. And of course, saints really means to be set apart unto God, to be sanctified unto God. Another way of translating saint is to be holy. We are holy ones. Being a Christian is not just a matter of getting something. It is a matter of being someone. A Christian is not simply a person forgiven and goes to heaven. A Christian is a spiritually born child of God, a divine masterpiece of God, a child of light, a citizen of heaven, being born again, transformed you into someone you who didn't exist before. When you become a Christian, you are transformed into someone who did not exist before. Society as a whole is in a terrible identity crisis, as well as a role confusion crisis. For the most part, people in general tend to be in conflict about who they are, what their role is in life. According to Eric Erickson in 1970, uh, he said, if you answered in the affirmative the following questions you are experiencing an identity crisis. And here are his questions. Are you unsure of your role in life? Do you feel like you don't know the real you? That Those are his questions. Researcher James Marcia in 1980 expanded upon Erickson's additional, uh, initial theory, and he concluded the balance between Feelings of identity and role confusion lies in making a commitment to an identity. James Marcia came up with the method to measure identity. This method looks at three different areas of functioning. Actually, four different areas of functioning. Occupational role, beliefs, values, and sexuality. He came up with four different identity statuses under that. The first one would be identity achievement. It occurs when an individual has gone through an exploration of different identities and made a commitment to one. The second one was a moratorium, is a status of a person who is actively involved in exploring different identities but has not made a commitment to one of those identities. And then there is the foreclosure status when a person has 
made a commitment without attempting to identify any exploration of an identity. I hope you're getting confused because that's exactly what happens when you deal with psychology. And then his last one is identity diffusion occurs when there is neither an identity crisis or a commitment to an identity crisis. Now, researchers have found that those who have made a strong commitment to an identity tend to be happier and healthier than those who have not. I don't know how they figure that out. Those with a status of identity diffusion tend to feel out of place in the world and because they don't pursue a sense of identity. And it is suggested that those who remain in the state of an identity diffusion without meaningful self-definition may be perceived as being in need of counseling. Now, apart from all this psychological mumbo-jumbo, this Lord's Day, let's allow the Word of God to counsel us as to who we are and what we should do. That's where we have to find our real identity because our, we do have a real identity, and people are in identity crisis today. They don't know who they are. They don't know what they're supposed to do. Today, they don't even know what gender they are. They don't know what de- gender. They, they are so confused. The world has so confused them, and Satan is right behind it all to keep that confusion going because if you can confuse people as to that, then he confuses He can confuse the whole society, the whole country, and uh, there goes it all down the tubes. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God, it doesn't seem like the world makes sense. See, God wants us to know who we are so that we we can start living accordingly. Being a child of God who is alive and free in Christ should determine what we do. Then we are working out our salvation, not working for our salvation. So understanding your identity in Christ is essential for living the Christian life. It must start there. It is not what you do as a Christian that determines who you are. It is who you are That's where we start, that determines what you do. So you have to know who you are before you can do, know what to do. So this brings me to, of course, our fourth point, and that means together Christians belong to the same community with a particular spiritual status, or I can say it this way, a particular spiritual identity. See, the status is telling who we are before God. This next passage really gives us four characteristics of who Christians are in their new position in Christ. And once you know who you are, then you ought to behave in accord with your new character. So you must know who you are before you can behave properly because you can behave according to who you are. So who are you before God? That's the first thing. And then what believers have as God's people? That's what we're going to investigate this morning, all right? Who you are before God, 
and what believers have as God's people. Now, who are you before God? Well, look at our passage here in verse number 9 of chapter 2. It says, but you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's who you are. Now, let me just break those down for a moment. It says, first of all, you are a chosen people, or you are an elect people. Who you are is really contrasted to who you were as a pagan, who you were before you met Christ and believed in him. We're chosen by God really for three things. We're chosen, first of all, for privilege. Through Christ, there is offered a new intimate fellowship with God. Christians are God's special people. An elect people, a new people group, that's who we are. God is willing also, when we are in that new people group, to make a roadway in the wilderness if he needs to, and a river in the desert if he needs to. If his people need that, he will do it because we are his people. It's the same kind of language used back in Isaiah chapter 43. Just listen to what it says. It says, the beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and a river in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people who I formed for myself will declare my praise. See, Christians are, I'm calling them Hevelonians. That's a word I'm coining this morning. One commentator said that we are heaven dwellers in line with what it says in Philippians 3.20. What does it say there? It says, for our citizenship is where? In heaven, right? From which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're cho- chosen also, we saw in verse number 1, we were cho- verse number 2 of First Peter chapter 1, that we're chosen for obedience. His people listened to his word, and desire to obey it. So we're willing listeners to the word of God. And then we're chosen for service. We're not just chosen to sit by as spectators. We are the servants of the Most High God, and we will be used for the purposes of God and desire to be used for God's purpose. See, that's who we are as Christians. We are definitely a chosen race. But then also we are a priesthood, secondly, of believers. A priesthood, a priest is really someone who serves God and has the right access to God, to him, and of course offers spiritual sacrifices to God. Remember, this was restricted to one tribe, the Levites. Now it extends to all members of the church who are the priesthood of believers. I believe that Luther coined that phrase, the priesthood of believers. It is an echo of what God said to the people in Exodus. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So we are not a ritual priesthood in, in, in this passage. We are a royal priesthood. Now that's very strange language. Jesus was the only royal priest. What's really the Old Testament referred to as Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a picture or type of Christ. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. First chapter 5, verse 10, and then Hebrews chapter 7, because Melchizedek is a very interesting character in Scripture. In the Hebrew, is it's Meliki Sedek, or we have Melchizedek. If you notice what it says in Scripture in Hebrews 5.10, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That's referring to Jesus Christ. Now, if you know anything about biblical chronology, then you will conclude that Melchizedek was in the order of high priests way before the Aaronic priesthood ever came on the scene and was ever established. Now, I, w- I want you to see how unusual this person is. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 through 3. It says this, For this Melchizedek, and here's what his name means, it means king of Salem or king of peace, king of righteousness, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Verse 2, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all, tenth part of all the spoils was first of all by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Now look at verse number 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually or forever. Now, who is this? This does not sound like somebody who is normal as to in the human realm. Well, Melchizedek really is really was a type, was a type of what Jesus Christ would be. The eternal priest king would be Jesus Christ. See, Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to every biblical and reasonable way the Old Testament referred to the Levitical priesthood. It was only a type of the ultimate superior priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ is the anti-type, which supersedes it just as the living reality supersedes a statue or a photograph. What's greater, a statue or the person it represents? What's greater, a photograph or the person it represents? Well, the person is the main focus of what is saying here. The point being, it is not Jesus 
who represents or resembles Melchizedek, but Melchizedek who represents the Lord Jesus. All types point to the reality. In this case, it's Jesus Christ. So Christ is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is greater than all because he is not from the line of Aaron who died. Jesus is related to the priesthood of Melchizedek, which has an eternal aspect to it, meaning that Jesus is a priest of God eternally. So this makes it quite different that when the Bible calls us a royal priesthood, it's calling us something that is only unique to Jesus Christ. In other words, you have to be connected to Jesus Christ to actually claim this characteristic of a believer. That when we are connected to Jesus Christ, there's an eternal aspect to our priesthood because of what Christ is connected to, that he is connected to to an eternal priesthood, not an earthly one. Now, that was the passage of Scripture that I, we read together. But I want you to notice that in these two sections, a lot of text there, but I want you to notice in the first column, it talks about the Levitical priesthood. In the second column, it talks about the, Melch- uh, the priesthood of, of uh, we're looking at here, Melchizedek. And if you notice down at verse number six, or number six in the, in the, the first column, it says, had nothing to do with kingship. And then the sixth on the part representing Melchizedek, it was a royal priesthood. Seven on the Levitical priesthood historically came after the Melchizedekian priesthood. And of course, number seven on the Melchizedek priesthood, it came before the Aaronic high priesthood came into existence. And then number nine on the left side of the Melchizedek, it says this, Melchizedek foreshadowed the character of Christ, his kingship, his priesthood, his righteousness, and his peace. So then Jesus Christ, who perfectly qualified as a high priest from an eternal order, can and will provide salvation to all who ask, making his ministry different in that unlike all those who have gone before, his ministry is eternally effective. So our royalty and our priestliness are derived from our salvation to Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ alone. In Israel, one could be royalty or priesthood, but they could not be both. As a believer, we are both royalty and priesthood. We are kingly priests. We occupy so high a position that no man can be higher in this life. No person can be higher in this life. And get this, a royal priesthood means we are a part We are part, not of a dying priesthood, but an eternal one that also belongs to a kingly order, that which does not pass away. See, this is who we are as Christians. We are that 
in our character. This is how God sees us and how God made us. And then back to our text, the next thing, the third thing says that we are a holy nation. We are a holy nation. Christians are set apart from this world to be God's special people, separated from the unholy and dedicated to God. We are God's different people, different because we are dedicated to God's will and to God's surface. Uh, service. So then we people must live as children of God and citizens of heaven, which demands a lifestyle of holiness. For a child of God, holiness is is to take on a noticeable difference in how we live, imitating the nature of God, which really becomes visible when God's people are being abused, when God's people are being mistreated, when God's people are are misunderstood or marginalized by others, that becomes apparent that we're living a different life. See, the Christian's response to opposition is to be a person of good works and attitudes of blessing. Now, if you look at verse number 12 of chapter 2, it says this, keep yourselves Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So you have nothing to do with the sinful practices of your neighbors or of your society. You live lives of goodness among those who mistreat and misrepresent you. In all your social relationships, you maintain a conduct, your desire is to maintain a conduct of holiness. So that's who we are as believers. We are a people who are a holy nation. We are different than the other people around us. And then the fourth thing is that we are people for God's own possession in our text. For God's own possession, a people who belong to God as objects of God's special care, a people for God specifically to possess. The last word of the prophets in Malachi chapter 3, verse 17, listen to what it says. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I prepare my own possession... I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. See, God is going to treat his people in a a way in which they are his own special possession. And if God owns us, and he has put a seal upon us by his Holy Spirit, and we are sealed unto the day of redemption, then no one can mess with us. Not even the demons can mess with us without the permission of God. But the value of a thing lies in the fact that someone significant possesses it. For example, I have a painting in my living room of Vincent van Gogh. Now, he was a Dutch post-impressionist painter who is probably the most famous and influential figure in Western art. 
He, had, he has notable works as The Starry Night, which I possess, uh, Cafe Terrace at Night, and then The Potato Eaters. So what makes his painting famous is the one who actually made it and possessed it, and that was Van Gogh himself. Unfortunately, Van Gogh suffered from epilepsy and mental depression most of his life and ended up committing suicide at 37. Also, a bat, a baseball bat. If it's owned by you and me, it doesn't mean much, but if it's owned by Mickey Mantle, who, if you, maybe some people don't even know who Mickey Mantle is. <laughs> I'm dating myself now. He was an outfield for the New York Yankees, famous for his 536 home runs and batting average of 298. His bats became famous. They're, they're actually behind glass somewhere that he acts... It's just a piece of wood. But see, because he possessed it, it made it, that possession special. And of course, the quill pen that John Hancock used to pen and sign the Declaration of Independence. What makes that quill so important? Well, he possessed it. He signed his name to it, and he became famous for that. So these things are of value because they are possessed by a great person. See, the Christian may be a very ordinary person, but he acquires a new value because he belongs to God. God has put his stamp upon that person. Believers belong to God and are objects of his love, his care, and his constant vigilance because they are his. Here it may also point out in our text of the full salvation of believers and the process to bring them to God, God's intended end. Remember, we've been talking about the whole realm of salvation and what's God's intended end for you and I as us being his possession? He will be our God and we will be his people. That's all over the Bible. You go back into the Old Testament, you go back into the the New Testament books, you go to Revelation, you find out the end result is God dwells with his people with no obstacles, with nothing blocking our worship with him, with no more sin natures, with glorified bodies, and, and we are his people, and we dwell with him forever and ever. See, Jesus paid the ransom, and he paid the ransom for his own, and they are his, and nobody could take them from him. So that is who we are before God. That's how God sees us. If we must see ourselves like that also. So together, together we are his people and what believers have as God's people in verse number nine, it says this. Why all that? Notice what it says in verse number nine. It says in the last part of the verse, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why we must see ourselves as that, because this is what we're to do. What, what, what is our responsibility to do as believers? Well, our responsibility is right here, that we are to proclaim the excellencies of him. Christians bring the exclusive message of the gospel to the world. Along with that, 
an ever-growing characteristic of a transformed life. They're different. They seem different. They talk different. They do different things. They hold this book in high regard called the Bible. They have a high standard of God. See, Christians bring to the world the standard of Jesus Christ, which is clearly different from the persons of the world. So then the Christian is a kind of conscience to any society in which it exists or which he or she exists. The world and its system doesn't like when their conscience is pricked by truth. So then we are an alien society living within a society, members of the kingdom of God, but aliens on the earth. And what makes us so different? Well, we are governed by the word of the living God. We are different because we obey a higher authority. Our higher authority is God. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are given the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, we Christians, as aliens in this world, have been called by Christ to bring the word of God, the gospel, to a world steeped, steeped in spiritual darkness. And what what does our culture need the most? What does any generation need the most? It needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one and only institution who has been mandated by God to bring the message to the world is the church. Is God's people dwelling together as the temple of God. We are to bring this message to the world because in the church are found the followers of Jesus Christ that Jesus has entrusted to his followers his message of salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone. Therefore, we are not merely chosen for heaven. We are chosen for earth. So the destination of the elect while they are on the earth is to move through this world demonstrating an alien lifestyle with the goal to proclaim the gospel and live out our ambassadorship as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're representing God from heaven on earth. We better make sure that as ambassadors, we represent the message of the king correctly. But then that brings me to the next thing, and that not only are believers, do they have a special responsibility, but secondly, and this is, this is quite amazing, what, what, what it says here, that believers have a privileged have a privileged position, but they also uh, have been people who have been called from darkness. Look what it says in verse nine. It says this: Not only are you a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for God's own possession, so that you can proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness to his marvelous light. Now, here is the inward call. The inward call of the gospel whereby God the Holy Spirit calls his people to himself effectually by working a miracle in their hearts, bringing them from spiritual death to life, from spiritual darkness 
to spiritual life, that the Holy Spirit transforms the heart, the mind, the will. And I believe uh, that this passage of Scripture is referring to this when the general call of the gospel goes out, there is that inward call that you can't refuse. That's the irresistible grace. For the text is saying here that you are called out. That means the result is being brought into God's marvelous light. You're called from something to something. Darkness is ungodliness. Darkness is opposition to God. It's estrangement from God and includes all the dreadful evils which are involved in an evil state of heart and mind. See, the power of sin, the tyranny of error, the slavery of corruption, these things are everywhere we look in this world and are characteristics uh, of the human nature and existence wherever you go. People without Christ are caught in a black void where there is a loss of sense of spiritual reality and perspective. That's why they have no identity. That's why they can't figure out things. Is because they're living in sheer darkness. Now, not many years ago, the blackest substance known on earth was discovered. It's called VBX2, better known as Vanta Black. Vanta black is a color that can absorb 98.65 to 99.965% of light in the visible spectrum of both the infrared and ultraviolet light. When light enters Vanta black, the light gets trapped in what they call nanotubes where it bounces around until it turns into heat. If you were to paint a car with Vanta Black and drove it into the powerful rays of the sun, it would cook you like a French fry. If you were to wake up in a room, paint it with Vanta Black, with no light source available, you would wake up in a mind-melting void. It would be like you are standing in nothingness because Vanta Black reflects so little light, anything covered with it effectually vanishes because it produces no shadows, no no contours, no gleams, just nothing. This means you would never gain your night vision. You would experience endless blackness. If the senses are deprived of light too long, one will begin to hallucinate, become extremely anxious, as if they're standing on the edge of an extremely deep, and dark hole. Eventually, there will be a loss of maintaining equilibrium due to a lack of visual cues. Finally, there will be a loss of a sense of time and perspective and reality. Ultimately, a person locked in a room painted with this color will go insane. Now, hopefully, I painted a dark picture for you. And for this reason because spiritual darkness will be even worse. If you turn your Bibles right to 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, I want you to notice something. It says there in that passage, 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, 
It says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, in verse 5, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And verse 6, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Verse number 9, skip down to verse number 9. Then... The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. See, the Bible describes when a person is cast into hell, it's going to be, they're going to be cast into utter darkness. Utter darkness. Spiritual darkness. And that's what it means to be separated from God. Because if you're separated from God, there is absolutely no light. There is absolutely no light at all whatsoever. Brethren, I said all of that to give you the sense of the precious and and the value of physical light. But more so, if you look at our passage, notice what it says. More so, spiritual light. Our spiritual existence depends on this. It says, and he has called you out of darkness to what? To a, it's like, here's a superlative adjective. Marvelous light. How do you define marvelous? It's it's almost like you don't have to add words to it. It is so grand, it is so great, it is so penetrating that You cannot add anything to it. And see, that's what he called us out of. He called us out of this this pit of darkness where we did not know God to now into light where we see things as they are. We see what God wants. We see who God is. See, to be Christian means to be taken out of this horrible darkness, out of this life of sin and shame and evil, and to begin to live a new life, to have a new start. It means now you belong to him who says to us in John chapter 8, in verse number 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life. See, Christianity is to belong to God who is light. And in him, as it says in 1 John 5, 1, 5, in him is no darkness at all. So you see, when you come to Christ, what does Christ do? Not only does he illuminate everything, make everything alive, but he exposes everything by the light. So a Christian has their sin exposed when they are living for Christ Jesus because that's what the light does. It doesn't allow you to hide anything. It brings it right to the surface. It is a realm of light and of glory, of holiness and purity, of peace everlasting. It says in Ephesians 
the inheritance of the saints in light. So this also applies that if you are a born-again believer, you are also light. You never had light in you before, and without Jesus Christ, you never could or would have acquired any ever. Why? Well, Ephesians 5, 8 tells us you were formerly darkness. That's where you live. That's where everybody lives without Christ. So it doesn't matter what religion they're from. If they're, they're in these religions that claim enlightenment, they are in darkness. The only way that you can be delivered from any of the darkness that we have been so used to is when you come to Christ. And when you come to Christ, everything is different. Since you came to believe in Christ, what does it say in Ephesians 5, 8? But now you are light in the Lord. This is the, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. It shows that a Christian is a person who, is, who undergoes the most vital change that affects their being, that affects the seed of their personality, that affects their inner person, including the affections and the mind and the will. Before conversion, before conversion to Christ, you and I were full of darkness, dead in trespasses and sin, ignorant of God, ignorant of your need of salvation, ignorant of your eternal destiny. And according to John chapter 3, we liked it. We loved our darkness. We also hid away from the light, lest our evil deeds would be exposed. We led a spiritually unfruitful life leading only to destruction and eternal death, but we didn't know it was leading there. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just as everyone else. But after conversion, after coming to Christ, no longer are we in darkness, but we are now light, no longer dead in trespasses and sin, no longer ignorant of God, no longer ignorant of ourselves, no longer ignorant of the purpose of life, no longer ignorant of our need for salvation, no longer ignorant of our eternal destiny, no longer do we uh, fear death to the extent we did before because we understand what Christ did in defeating death on the cross. So our lives were brought into the life, the light, and we saw things like they really were, like we never saw them before. Don't you get that sense when you read the Word of God? Don't you get the sense that, wow, I would never have thought of that. This is amazing. I can't believe this. Of course, you can't believe it, but it's an expression. Now, as our, our text says, well, Ephesians 5, 8, that we, are, we, we walk now as children of light. So,
Actually, the Greek term in, in, in where it says you are light in Ephesians is translated. It, it, it's saying not that you shall be light or you hope to be light or you may become light, but you are light. You are something that you were not before. Actually, there, there's actually a philosophy uh, and in philosophy called uh, the law of identity, which simply states, stated means whatever is, is. For example, A is A, iron is iron, stone is stone, and so on. The premise of this principle lies in the fact that if any knowledge is possible at all, the character of things must remain fixed. So this means that A is A, iron is iron, stone is stone, and the Christian is light. That's the fact of Scripture. All right, so that's who we are. And then it's this, that a second thing is believers have a privileged position that a believer has been called from being nobody to being somebody. If you look at our text, it says this, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Of course, this is a, a quote from Hosea, chapter 1, verse 6 through 10, where it tells us in that passage of Scripture, especially verse number 10, Hosea is told by God, go and marry a prostitute, and that the prostitute has two children, a boy and a girl. And then the boy's name, lo Rahoma means I will no longer have compassion or I'll no longer have mercy. And, of course, lo-ami, which means you are not my people and I am not your God. But then in verse number 10 of that chapter, it says, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in that place where it is said to them, you are not my people, I will... It will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. See, that is what the scripture promised back then, and that's who we are. Not only are we called out of spiritual darkness to God's marvelous light, but believers used to be nobody, and now they're somebody. And then a third thing would be this, that believers... Uh, have been called out of no mercy to mercy, where it says in 1 Peter, you have not received mercy. You have not received mercy. Actually, he uses a, 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 a sense of Greek verbs, and it says, uh, you have not received mercy, perfect tense, and now you have, aorist tense, receive mercy. See, the contrast of the perfect and the aorist tense verb stresses the, the contrast between the long state of unbelief and darkness and in a single event of conversion, which ended unbelief and darkness, changed it to belief and light because of God's mercy. Because of God's mercy. Another way of Defining mercy would be that of having compassion. It says in this passage, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who has not obtained compassion or mercy. 
I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So all people receive either justice or mercy. If they receive Christ, they receive mercy. If not, they receive justice. This is what the scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. It says, God, but God being rich in mercy. If justice means people will get quite accurately what they deserve from God, that's justice and wrath, well then, wouldn't it, wouldn't we find that if a God who is rich in mercy, wouldn't that be pleasant to our ears? That God is not going to give us something that we actually deserve? See, mercy means God will not give you what you deserve. And what do you deserve? What does everyone deserve? God's justice. God's wrath. See, the Greek term for mercy brings to mind several synonyms, which is clemency, compassion, pity. So mercy indicates the emotion, an emotion aroused by someone in need, the attempt to relieve the person and remove his trouble. God saw us in our need, and he moved with mercy towards us and saved us. I love what it says in Titus. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, in righteousness but according to his what? Mercy. He saved us. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, tells us something more about God's mercy. It says there that God is rich in mercy. You know what that means? He has a lot of it. It never runs out. It's available to anyone who comes and asks Christ to save them. God is right there to give you mercy. So today, today you either stand, today you either stand under God's justice, or you stand in God's mercy. So brethren, all this has been describing who you are as a believer. All this has been describing your identity. Your identity. So brethren, I pray your identity crisis has been cured by the counsel of Scripture today. Because if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then... This is who you are, as Scripture has described today. This is who you are. You are chosen people who form God's new people. You are Hevelonians. You are a priesthood believers. You are a people holy and different. You are a people for God's, for God specially to possess. You are light. You are somebody. You are, you have God's mercy. And brethren, if you have that, you're, you're different. It changes the next thing we're going to look at next week, what you actually do. But you have to, you can't turn it around. Say, this is what I do and I don't know who I am. No, this is who I am and this is what I do. 
See, that's what a Christian is. So God wants us to know who we are so that we can start living accordingly. Understanding your identity in Christ, as I said already, is essential for living the Christian life. It is not what you do as a Christian that determines who you are. It is who you are first that determines what you do. So next time, we're going to look at what we do before men based on who we are. Let's pray. Lord, this morning again, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, for the word of God. I thank you, Lord, for what's contained therein. I pray, Lord, that you would impress it upon our hearts to the point that we not only truly grasp it and understand it, but, Lord, again, that the word of God would get down to our very souls and it would digest there. And in the digestion, the spiritual digestion process, it would get to transform our very being and, Lord, our very practice. So, Lord, that we would not only be a hearer of the word of God, but we would be a doer based on who we are in Christ. And I pray as we understand that, then, Lord, Satan can fling every lie against us that he can and it's just going to roll off us because that's not who he, we are when he comes against us with all his lies and all his slander and all his manipulation when he calls us nobody when he says that will never amount to anything and Lord he breaks us down we just got to go right back to scripture and says no you're lying to me this is what the word of God says this is who I am and this is who I am before God. So thank you. Goodbye. I just pray, Lord, that you would just use the word to make us strong in the faith. And I pray it in your name. Amen.